much. Appreciate that. We have a. I hope you've been praying through all this service. Andy's working this weekend, three 16-hour shifts in a row, and today's the third one. So we don't have a sound man here. So I was trying to bring all this stuff up, up, and he was trying to guide me on the phone, and then in comes Jared, and I said, "Here." <laughs> I just gave it to him. Said, "You got it. I'm out of here." But uh, Jared and his wife. Uh, Jan are coming to present a special to us this morning. So if we look like we don't know what we're doing, well, you're wrong. I don't know what I'm doing, but he knows. Thank you so much, Jared and Jen. We might be under control here. We got Susie in the sound room here, I see, so that, that might be good. I don't know. Uh, all right, I do have a little announcement to make here. Uh, I see Mr. Butler's here with his family. 
he handed me this little sheet here and wanted to know if I'd make an announcement to, to our church, and this same announcement's going out in several other churches around town, but we need an administrative secretary at BIMI. The one we currently have is, um, I guess we'll say she's retiring. She's really, her husband's not been able to work for some time now, and so he's gotten to the point where she feels like she needs to be home with him full time. And he has, um, I guess he'd be sort of like Joni and Carol here with fibromyalgia and arthritis and all these sorts of things that are just wreaked havoc on his body and have prevented him from working. So anyway, she's taking a, a needed retirement, and we're in need of an, an administrative secretary. Um, and if you fill the bill for that and you're interested, why, I was going to give you this sheet of paper, but you could actually just after the service walk back there and see Mr. Butler and let him know of your interest uh, in that position there. So we want to just let you know about that, make it known to you. that, And um, if there is no one here, then be praying about that because it's a sensitive position for us. It's uh, one that, you know, it's pretty demanding is what I'm trying to say. It's demanding. So if you know of someone or if you'd like to inquire about it yourself, just let us know. Um, and I hope everybody got over to say hi to Walt, and we're glad you're here. <laughs> uh, but he had to spend a little time in the hospital this week unexpectedly, and so we're glad he's with us today. And he looks as good as ever, maybe better, I don't know. But we're sure glad you're here. All right, if you would turn with me to 1 Peter, we've been exploring this entire epistle, and we've just really gotten a good start on it, and so we want to continue with that this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're glad for those that have been able to join with us this morning, our guests, and grateful that you're here, and hope everybody got around to shake your hand as much as possible in that little bit of time we had. Now, in this introduction, um, and, in the, and by way of introduction, these first few verses here in First Peter, we saw who he was writing to, a group of believers that had been scattered throughout various provinces in Asia Minor, which you and I would know today is the whole area of Turkey. I think every one of these areas that he's mentioned, if you went to the country of Turkey, you could find these. Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia Minor, and so on. And he described them as Christians who had been scattered, scattered throughout these provinces in a place that they would not call their home, and in re really see seeking to uh, encourage them and uplift them concerning this salvation of which he speaks here in just a few verses. As a matter of fact, he mentions this salvation in verse 5. But the interesting thing I think we need to point out for us and for most in the church is that in verse 3, he speaks about having been regenerated already, having been born again or born from above. I like the idea of being born from above because it tells us the source of where this birth comes from. And it comes from God in heaven. It is a birth that's not of man, John 1.12 says. It's not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, he says, but it's of God. And so that birth has nothing to do with anything that we can do. It all comes from God. 
and we associate this birth with salvation, a salvation that delivers us from the penalty of sin. And in this passage here, he's speaking to people who have already experienced that, and yet he's writing to encourage them about a salvation to come, a salvation that is yet future. And related to that salvation is an inheritance. Related to that inheritance, he says, is a living hope in verse 3. And then in verse 9, this salvation is related to the salvation of your soul or the saving of your soul, the preserving of your life. Verse 10, he mentions that salvation again, of which we're going to delve into this morning, of which salvation the prophet spoke. So when he talks about the Old Testament prophets speaking about this particular salvation, let's not get, get it confused with the salvation that we experience when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is talking about the salvation that comes subsequent to that, the fullness of salvation, or salvation completed in its finality. And then if you look over to chapter 2 and verse 2, he says there, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. And if you have uh, one of the newer translations, it might say unto salvation. Some, some texts, uh, manuscripts, have the words grow unto salvation. Whether it does or not is in no consequence to me. Uh, because it fits the context perfectly. The whole tenor of what Peter's writing about is this future salvation and its fullness, its completeness, as it's worked out in the life of a Christian, in the life of a believer. And so that's what he's speaking about. And we have, we have examined that all the way through uh, verse 9. We delved into verses 10 and 11 last week. But at least through verse 9, this salvation he speaks of is only wrought or brought about through the testing of our faith. The trial of your faith, the King James Version calls it, but it's the testing. Our faith, in order for this salvation of our soul to, be, to happen, for it to occur, has to be put to the crucible. It must be tested. And you remember we said that it could be looked at in two different ways, this idea of this testing with the idea of approval, or it could be looked at negatively with the idea of disapproval or found to be false. In Peter's case here, he's writing on the positive side. He is writing to these scattered Christians, these pilgrim Christians, undergoing various trials and heaviness, he says, or grief, he says, you're going through this now, but it's with the idea of you being approved. He's looking at it from the positive side. And that's the way you and I ought to be looking at it ourselves, is that the things that we are enduring and going through in our life as a Christian, if we understand the outcome, the saving of our soul, then you would know that you need to look upon all these trials as positive. We need to look upon those trials as producing approval at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what our desired outcome should be. And so in verse 10, 
as he continues on speaking about this particular salvation, he says, of which salvation? He hasn't changed. He's talking about the same salvation in verse 5, the same salvation in verse 9, the same salvation in chapter 2, verse 2, and the other words, saved and saving, that we will look at later on as we proceed through the book of First Peter. And so this salvation, he says, the prophets of old, he said, have inquired and searched diligently. Now that, those words inquired and searched diligently are actually the same word in Greek or nearly the same word. One adds a little more intensity to the other one. When it says he and they inquired about it, it has the idea they searched it out. They checked it out. And then it says they searched diligently. That is, they went at it with an intensity, with a desire to find out just what it was concerning this salvation that they themselves were prophesying about having been moved by the Holy Spirit of God, or as he says here in, in this passage in verse 11, the Spirit of Christ working in them. And so they searched it out. It might be, you might, and, and this searching diligently carries with it the idea of something hidden. So you're seeking for something that's hidden. You might be like a, a miner going down into a mine shaft searching for gold. You know, you're looking for something that you cannot see, but intensely looking for it. Now, he, with that in mind, he says, these prophets, though, he says, prophesied, and that word prophesied, we're just familiar with that. It means to speak beforehand. It means to tell you ahead of time what's going to happen, what's about to occur, and these prophets spoke ahead of time beforehand of the grace that should come unto you or the coming grace. This coming favor to be bestowed upon you. That's what they were talking about. And so they understood that that God had something out in the future for these. And when he says to you, he's talking about these, these pilgrim Christians about the grace that would come unto them. Now, under those conditions that they were living and the persecutions that they were undergoing, the trials that they were enduring, the griefs that they were experiencing, I'm sure they didn't think that it was so much grace. And neither do you and I when we're going through the trial, when we're enduring the pain and the suffering and the experiences of life that come our way We tend not to think about the grace, nor, as we spoke about last week, would we look to James and say, hey, it's joy. Count it all joy, brothers, when you go through these things. Or Peter even here said, it's rejoicing. You consider it rejoicing. Uh, Even though you go through, through these things for a season, he says, you greatly rejoice. You know, well, I don't know. I, I don't know when it all started. Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, this word mega was popularized, and it went around in our lingo for a while. We talked about mega this and mega that and everything. Well, that's the word here. Greatly rejoicing, mega rejoicing. It's big time, happy time, in the midst of trial, in the midst of grief. 
And through all of this, he calls it grace, the favor that should come unto you. And then he uses that same, uh, well, actually it's a different word here, the word searching in verse 11 then, searching what or what manner of time. This word searching here, this is a little, little more down to earth. We can relate to this. Look at uh, uh, John, John 5. John chapter 5, and I forget what verse, but it's verse 29, 39. John chapter 5, verse 39. And In verse 37, Jesus says, The Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor have seen his shape. And ye have not this, his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures. That's the same word used over here in 1 Peter 1. Search the scriptures. In other words, it's the idea of, you know, just get in there and, and look it out. Go find it. It's there. Search for it. Examine it. And you'll find it to be the case. Well, here's what these prophets were doing. So, you, you know, one thing we can understand from this is that the prophets, according to Second uh, um, Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he tells us there that the prophets of old were born along by the Holy Spirit or carried along by the Holy Spirit as they were recording the message of the Word of God. And yet, even in spite of the fact that they were energized by God's Spirit to record these words, they didn't always understand what they were writing down. There were some things that were unclear to them, and so they were searching it out. Now, they did understand what the message was here concerning this prophesied grace. And they knew that it was connected to a Messiah because he tells them there, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which, is, which was in them, did signify. And that word signify is literally it means to make it clear. <laughs> so that's what he was doing. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Messiah was in the prophets making clear to them the manner of this grace that would, was to come unto these present-day Christians, the ones Peter was writing to, the ones that would, he would be writing to today in this auditorium. He's speaking to us. Now, when they were considering that grace, it says, what or what manner of time? There's a couple of ways that you can take that. The word what, which is just, it's just it's in the Greek just like it is here in English. It just says what or what time. But it could be understand, understood to mean what, who, or what time. In other words, 
the prophets were searching for the identity of this person and the circumstances surrounding the time in which it would occur, this grace that was to come unto them. That's, that would be one way to look at that. Or it could be just as it implies in our text here in the King James Version, it could just mean they were looking concerning the, the time, the time when this would happen. The Messiah was not unknown to them. And the whole idea of a Messiah coming to deliver Israel was not unknown to Israel. And we know that. That was not something unusual. And so to look for the identity of this person I don't think really represents what he was saying here. But the fact that he was, they were looking for, well, when's this going to occur? When will it be happening? What will be the circumstances in Israel at the time this happens? They were, they were looking to identify that time. And so when he does that, they're looking for this now, and he says it was made clear to them, it did signify or make clear, or your translation might say it was indicating or pointing to this grace that should come when it or he, the Holy Spirit, testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And he lays out there for us that key principle that we're well aware of, or at least we should be well aware of, this principle in Scripture is that there is a suffering that always precedes glory. It's always there. Glory never comes apart from sufferings. It didn't come for Christ, and it's not going to come for us. That's why it's so amazing in the church today to find so many people think that we can just uh, live a life of ease and glory and luxury here and then expect more glory to follow. It's like eat our cake and have it too saying, we want it all now and we want it all then. And the principle of Scripture is it does not happen that way. Sufferings always must precede the glory. And it pointed to specifically, specifically the sufferings of Messiah. How that Messiah would suffer and then the glory that should follow. Or actually it's plural. It's the glories that should follow. Following those things. Let's, um, this, this, let's kind of pull it together a little bit. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Just look at a few verses here regarding this Spirit of Christ because I want us to see that in relationship, well, to what Peter's talking about here. In Romans 8 and verse 9, he says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So basically we have equated here the Spirit of God with the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of Messiah. All right, with that in mind, let's look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1 and then we're also going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 
and verse 17. So if you want to be flipping over there, looking that one up, 2 Corinthians 3.17, Galatians 4.1. In Galatians 4.1, I'll read it if I can get out of Ephesians here. In Galatians 4.1, he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. And I don't know if that's what I wanted to read or not, but that's what the reference I've got written down. Uh, Well, that's what I wrote down, and I'm going to look, and it's not verse 11, so I'm not sure what I was looking for there. Um, if, you look at, if you look at Galatians 5.16, though, he does tell you there, this I say then, walk in the Spirit. So just keep that in mind. Walk in the Spirit. Think about that for a moment, and let's turn to 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now, this passage here is really rather lengthy. You'd probably need to go back to at least verse 4 of this passage to catch the idea of what Paul's talking about. But he's talking about the uh, comparing, comparing the Old Testament economy with, with that which we have now. And in verse 9, or excuse me, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 3.8, he says, How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Or more literally, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit will be in glory? For if the ministration of, the, of condemnation be glory, how much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory? In other words, if the old one was full of glory, how much more this one? Even so more, it exceeds in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. So it's, uh, in other words, he's simply saying the, the glory that's spoken of concerning the Christ, the Messiah, and that which would come with him is so great it makes the old one look as if it had no glory at all. Yet he says that whatever glory the old one had, hey, the new one far exceeds that. It's greater in glory, more glorious. And so in verse 11, if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Yeah, try to convince us of that here in this King James passage here. It's not so plain as to what he's really saying. But the point being was, was that, as we've said, the glory which came to Israel through Moses was glorious. But that which we have now exceeds in glory, far more so, to the point that when you compare them, it's just as if the old had no glory at all whatsoever. Even that which Moses had, he said, he put a veil over his face. And then the, the, the glory that was revealed on Moses' face, over time it would fade away. 
and be gone. So they had to put a veil over his face. But he says then in verse 15, Even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart, that is, upon Israel's. So, verse 16, Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And that will happen at the second coming of Christ. Verse 17, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Lord is that Spirit. Whether you're talking about the glory that was given in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament economy, under Moses, or you're talking about the glory now, which exceeds, it it was the Spirit of the Lord. And that's what I'm trying to get us to see here, is that this Spirit of the Messiah is the Spirit of the Lord. It is no different. Turn with me now back to Isaiah chapter 61. You may remember this as a verse that the Lord Jesus Christ himself uh, quoted as he went into a synagogue and took opportunity to read the scriptures to those that were uh, sitting there. And in verse 1 it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That is the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Jesus was proclaiming himself to be the one in whom this verse was being fulfilled. And so when he went into that synagogue and read this verse, he was proclaiming to them, I am the one whom this this is speaking about here. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings. It was the Spirit of the Lord upon Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, of whom he was speaking. So the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Christ are one and the same. And what I, well, let's, one more thing then. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I hope to pull this together so you see what we're speaking of here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's a, a passage relating to an experience of the Israelites in, in, in the wilderness as they came out of Egypt. And Paul is using this passage as an application to the things he spoke about at the end of chapter 9 regarding the Christian. In chapter 9, in the last few verses there, Paul said that when a Christian enters into a race, that is... The experiences that he goes through in life, he uses the race, a race, like an Olympic race, a track event, as something which the believer enters into. And just like in the race, at the end there is a prize, there is a goal to reach towards, Paul says that he brings himself under subjection or discipline in order that he might run by the rules so that when he gets to the end of the race, he doesn't find out he's been disqualified from the race because he didn't run it according to the rules. And so he says 
in um, verse 24, he says, Know ye not they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize, so run that ye may obtain. Now that word ye is plural. So when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he was admonishing all of the believers there to run in such a way that when they came to the end of life and they had attained to the goal, the end of the race, that is, that they wouldn't be forsaken or disqualified from receiving the prize because they hadn't run according to the rules. That's why it makes a difference how you live your Christian life. That's why we're going to find out as we proceed on into 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter said, Be ye holy as I am holy. Because it makes a difference to God. It makes a difference how we run the race. And so then in chapter 10, he begins to make a comparison between that and the lives of the Israelites as they came out of Egypt, having been delivered from the bondage that they had been experiencing for the previous 430 years. And so in verse 10 he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you would be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The spirit of the Messiah was that spirit of which they drank when they believed the Lord to deliver them from bondage in Egypt, to bring them out on the other side through the Red Sea, having been baptized in the sea, he says, brought out into the wilderness, there to follow the Lord and to be his people. And so this drink that they drank, and of course we have the, the illustrations of Moses going to the rock and bringing water out of the rock as a spiritual application, uh, a literal application, I should say, of the spiritual drink of which they were partaking when they believed on the Lord. And so having done so, they came out to follow the Lord and the Spirit of Christ, the rock which was in them, he says, was Christ, Messiah. It is the same Spirit that Peter's speaking of back here in 1 Peter chapter 1, the Spirit of Christ that was in the prophets. So they had this Spirit within them concerning Messiah. They knew who Messiah was, that is, concerning the promised Messiah and what God had promised to give them in him, now they're searching out when is this going to occur? What are the circumstances surrounding all of this that is about to happen? When will it be? What will take place? And plainly and clearly identified with that searching was the sufferings of the Christ the sufferings of the Messiah, and the glories that should follow. So if we were to turn back then to Isaiah chapter 53, a passage that you're all very familiar with, a passage that predicts the, the suffering that Messiah would go through and that which he would endure is foretold there. It's spoken of. 
We don't have time to read the entire passage. But it says there in verse 3 concerning him, it says uh, he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with griefs in Psalm 53, 3. He was despised. We esteemed him not, verse 4. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Oh, yeah, he, it was predicted clearly Messiah would suffer on our behalf. If you move over to chapter 4, there is what's called the Song of Salvation there. And then um, chapter uh, 55 speaks further concerning this promised salvation. And then in chapter 56, he begins to talk about the millennial blessings. The blessings which would follow, or the glories which would follow the salvation that Messiah would bring. The glories that followed the suffering. Now, um, he talks about uh, in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. And in view of that which is to come, in verse 4, he says, Thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. These are the people to whom the favor would be bestowed. The blessings would come. Those who choose the things that please him. Be ye holy as I am holy. Those are the things that please the Lord, the holy things. And then he said in verse 6, concerning the future and the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. Well, as we've discovered before, a holy mountain has reference to his kingdom, his promised coming rule. And to the stranger, he says, that was the one who was the non-Israelite, the Gentile. To the Gentile who would do these things, he says, I will invite to my holy mountain. I'll bring him to my holy mountain. He will participate in the blessings of Messiah. But you see, there had to be a joining to, an identification with, <clears throat> a calling upon, a loving of the name of the Lord. One who was not afraid then to be called a Christian or ones who belong to Christ. Now, even then, if you turn back also to, um, and we don't really have time to go through all of this, but in Isaiah 11, he speaks again about future promised blessings during the millennium, or during the rule uh, of the branch, which is what he calls the Messiah here. 
And he says in verse 1, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And he tells them through the next several verses various things, blessings that will occur during the rule of this branch, during the rule of Messiah. But look at verse 10. That's what I want us to see this morning. Verse 10 says, And in that day, that is, in the millennial day, when Christ comes to rule the earth, there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Now you need to think through a couple of things there. The first one is his rest. The writer to the Hebrews understood what he was saying. Because in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, he speaks about the rest which you and I should be pursuing after. The rest that will come when Messiah comes. And then also, he says, and his rest shall be, and it's not Literally, it's the noun. His rest shall be glory. And we need to be able to identify then that glory which is spoken of in the, by uh, the Lord in the, in the Gospels, in the Gospel accounts, and particularly we think about Matthew chapter 19 with the rich young ruler. And you remember when Peter asked him the question, you know, we've been following you. We haven't turned away like this, this young ruler here did. With all of his wealth and that which he gave up, we followed you. He said, what, what are we going to have out of this? And the Lord told him, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. Or actually it says, when he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. So when we look at that noun, we look at that to identify that with this time of glory here. They're one and the same. When Messiah comes to sit upon the throne of his glory, all of these things will occur. But first comes the sufferings. First comes the sufferings of Messiah. And first comes the sufferings for you and I. So we belabored that point simply to show that suffering comes before the blessing. The the the, the you know the there's, a, there's suffering before there can be a crown. Crucifixion before a crown. It always occurs that way, and it's a, an established principle in the Bible. Now, having said that, having said that, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, he says then, concerning all of these things about the coming Messiah, concerning the establishment of his kingdom and the sufferings that he was going to endure, he says unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves was this to come, but unto us. And at this point in time, Peter identifies himself with those persecuted, scattered, grieving, suffering Christians in Asia Minor, in Turkey. It was for us, he said, that these things were revealed to them. And they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Hey, he said, that's been reported to you by the gospel 
that was preached unto you. Do you notice how he identifies the gospel that he's speaking of here? It was a gospel to people in verse 3 who had already been regenerated, already been born again. But there was a further good news for them to hear, a further good news to have been experienced. And this good news was related to the glory that should follow Messiah's sufferings. It is related directly to the prize that comes from enduring a race in which you must discipline yourself, in which you must be take, uh, take great care to run by the rules, in which we find in 1 Peter 1 that we need to be holy and walk accordingly. That's how we obtain the prize. That's how we experience the glory. That's how we enter into his rest in the future, is by doing those very things. This, this message, he says, sent down from heaven, which things angels desire to look into. It's an awesome thing. I think we alluded to this last week, that, uh, and we won't take time to look the passages up, to talk about the angels that were present and actually were the, apparently the intermediaries who brought the word of God to Moses at Mount Sinai. They were the, they were the carriers at that point in time. They knew this word. And yet, because of the mystery surrounding it, they had a desire to look into those things themselves. But yet, Peter's whole message to that group of scattered Christians up there in Asia Minor, he says, it's now been revealed to you. This is no longer a mystery. This is not something unknown which we need to diligently search out and seek after. It's been made known. And he uses a word there when he says, did signify it unto you. It's a word that is very root and very plain means make it clear. He made it clear. And yet, most of the church today has missed that message. Most of us have heard the gospel of salvation. We've trusted Christ as our Savior. We've heard that we're going to heaven when we die. Our sins have been cared for and covered. And we're simply happy with that. Satisfied just to go on in life and not have to worry about another thing. Yet when the scriptures plainly teach us that, The call of Jesus Christ upon our life is to be a disciple of his. The call which he places upon us is for us to come under, to submit ourselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, we need to be very careful when we pray or when we talk in conversation about calling Jesus my Lord and Savior. Most of us just need to be careful to say, well, he's my Savior. And if he's going to be your Lord, you better be very careful about how you say that. Because if you're claiming him as your Lord, then on Judgment Day, he's going to say, well, then why didn't you do the things I said to do? And that's a serious matter. But you know something? I like the promise that the Lord gives us I like the assuring word that God's word gives us that if we do those things, he says, happy are ye if you do them. 
It is to be expected that the person who willingly does those things, he says, is going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We don't have to go through life with dread with respect to the coming judgment seat of Christ. We can look forward to it with joy, with confidence, if we simply do what he says. And he will then will fulfill his word in us to the T, exactly as he said he would do. So when we leave here today, we ought to leave with joy and confidence if I'm walking in the Lord's favor, if I'm walking in obedience. But if not, maybe there needs to be some repenting. Maybe there needs to be some corrections made in our lives as to our diligence to follow the Lord. Or maybe you've never done so at all. Maybe you've never come to the point in your life where you said, Lord, I want to make you Lord of my life. I am going to willingly submit to you as my Lord. There needs to be a time and a place when we do that. Because it is a gospel message, as Peter says here. These scattered Christians that were throughout this province of Asia Minor and Cappadocia and Bithynia and so on, heard this message. They had believed and followed the very things that Peter is talking about. That's why he's able to write to them the way he is, with words of encouragement. And I want to leave you with words of encouragement too, words that you would follow and take home with joy today because you know you're fulfilling these in your own life. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we look upon your word with uh, a certain amount of fear and trepidation because they're clear and plain to us. They're very straightforward. And yet we also look with the kind of joy and gladness that comes through faith and through obedience that to the one who believes and obeys, you've promised great blessings, promised great joy, promised great satisfaction to those who are willing recipients of your love. And I pray that we would take those things to heart today, that we would uh, willingly give our hearts to you in full obedience to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. And we'd like to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. And if that's something that you would like to do, or if you have any other need or reason for coming, you want to pray, you want to unite with this church, you, want to, you need to be baptized to identify yourself with Christ. And by the way, my understanding of baptism is really quite joined with this whole idea of making Christ Lord of your life. It's a, baptism is associated with the message of what we were speaking of this morning, a clear understanding of this gospel and being willing to associate yourselves with him. Let's pray. Yeah, we're going to sing again, Will Jesus Find Us Watching? Maybe you got a copy of it there. If you have, we need to share. comes to reward his servants, whether it be noon or night, faithful to him will he find us.
It's been my delight to have you here. I don't know how to approach these things when I, when I get this privilege to stand here and speak concerning the Lord's Word. I see this little tiger here that wanted to be down here with Grandma. <laughs> Look at that. That's great. He wanted to be right down front here, so I'm glad of that. Uh, it's, it's, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy being here, and I, I trust it. Just trust that I'll fulfill all the Lord's called me here to do. <laughs> 